met you before. I'd love to meet you today so we can be best friends forever and ever and ever. <laughs> but really, uh, so glad to have you here this morning. Uh, if you have a three to six-year-old and you have not yet gone to children's church, now is that time. And uh, so just keep that in mind. If you're not three to six, you cannot go to children's church, but you can sign up to do children's church over the next couple weeks, so you're welcome. Um, I know some of you were just really wondering, can I sign up and help with children's church? And the answer is yes. Yes, you can. I promise it's true. Free of charge, even. So you're welcome. Uh, with this uh, being Memorial Day weekend, um, the first thing I want to say is uh, if, you, if you are a veteran and you served, would you please stand at this time so we can thank you for your service? Come on, guys. There you go. There you go. From talking to uh, some of my friends who are currently serving, they would also want me to add that Memorial Day is more than another Veterans Day, but it is a weekend where we remember those who lost their lives uh, serving in the armed forces. And so we especially want to be thinking and helping those who are remembering lost ones this weekend, ones that they lost in battle. So again, I share that with you, coming from someone who is inactive, and he actually would be mad that I made the veteran stand up. Uh, he's like, he's, he told me he would not stand up if I ever did that to him. Thankfully, he goes to another church. But, <laughs> but for him, the idea is that uh, we remember those who lost their lives and gave their lives. So we want to make sure to do that as well as honor those who did serve in so many ways. Speaking of celebrating, we're going to talk about celebration today. So turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 11. It's going to be on page 919. And I want to give you something that I believe is a true statement and I didn't, I didn't originally say this, um, but a guy named Ed Stetzer said this, you will be what you celebrate. Let me read you this quote. This is from Ed Stetzer. He says, I tell denominational leaders regularly, what you celebrate, you become. For too many years, my denomination was focused on what we were against, though I see that changing. Other denominations did the same. And it should not surprise us that when we did not celebrate church planting, we were not strong in church planting. What you celebrate, you become. And as I was thinking about that, because we're going to see celebration in our story today, as I was thinking about that quote, what you celebrate, you become, I had to think, why? Why is that true, that what you celebrate, you become? And, and I think it's this. I think you celebrate, you become what you celebrate because what you celebrate is what you love. You're not going to celebrate something you don't love. And it's the things that we love that change us. So celebration has 
has a changing power in our lives individually and in our lives as a church because it recognizes what we really love and care about. And so if you want to show me what you love, show me what you celebrate. And we as a church and as individuals need to make sure we're celebrating the right things. Because we don't want to become what we don't want to become. And so to make sure we, we, we are the church we want to be, we need to understand what we should celebrate and what we should love as individuals and as a church. And in our story today, the early church celebrates the conversion of sinners. This is the second part, so if you're here last week, you're going to get a little review. If you weren't here last week, you're actually in luck because we're actually going to get almost the whole text from last week again. But you had this problem. The church was all Jewish Christians. And then this crazy thing happened where Gentiles, non-Jewish people, believed the gospel and the world was forever changed. And the church has a decision to make. What are we going to do with these Gentiles who believe the same things we do? The people that we were told don't even go in their homes. What are we going to do since they've believed the gospel? And it's a complete turning point in the history of the world as to how they're going to respond to that question of what do I do when people different from me want to believe like me? So if you're following along in the outline of your bulletin, we're going to see this big idea. We need to celebrate conversion by making evangelism a joyful priority. So point number one there in our story this morning is this. Did you really eat with Gentiles? Look at verses 1 to 3 of chapter 11. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So news is spreading that these dirty Gentiles are believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem... The circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. And so as the news is gathering, people are not happy. And this whole group of people at the church in Jerusalem confronts Peter. We don't know how many they were. We don't know if it was a majority of the Christians. We just know it was a big enough group and they were mad enough that they confronted one of the original disciples. I mean, you think about that, that that that's the level of how upset they were that it made them so mad that they would question publicly a guy who walked around and lived with Jesus for three years who was even a part of that inner circle of Peter, James, and John that got to do different things than the other disciples did. This was Jesus' inner circle. This was Jesus' guy, Peter. And they were so mad that he had gone into a Gentile house 
and, and shared the gospel with Gentiles, they are, they are publicly confronting him. But what's Peter going to do? Because he has a couple choices. He's got this angry part of the church, angry at him for going into the house of a Gentile. And he's got some choices to make. He can either say, you know what? I was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. I'll stop doing that. Or he can stand up for the truth that the gospel is for all people. Again, there's a huge crossroads that the church is at at this moment. And thankfully for us and for the world, Peter is going to stand up for his convictions. And he's going to demonstrate to the believers there that yes, God is saving Gentiles and wants us to be one church, Jews and Gentiles. Now let me just say by way of explanation here that the next verses 4 to 17 are pretty much a retelling of chapter 10. And so in a couple places I'll move a little faster Uh, than I might if this was the only time we heard this story. So again, if you weren't here last week, this is like a two-in-one sermon today, so you're welcome. Um, Peter starts off, like in chapter 10, telling about his picnic vision. Look at verses 4 to 7. But Peter began and explained to them in order, I was in the city of Joppa praying, And in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And so again, as we talked about last week, that God gave this vision to Peter. And on this picnic blanket that came down from heaven are animals that Peter should not have eaten as a Jew. They were unclean animals. And God is saying to him, rise, kill, and eat. Have a Memorial Day barbecue with these animals you're not supposed to eat. The story continues on. In verses 8 to 10, where where God declares these foods clean, as we saw last week. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. So Peter says, God, I, I follow the kosher laws like I'm supposed to. But God's response in verse 9, what God has made clean do not call common. God is doing something new. God is making what was not clean, clean. And in verse 10 we see that this happened three times 
and all was drawn up into heaven. Again, this emphasis that this vision came from God, that God was trying to teach Peter something new. That things didn't work like they once did. That God had declared those animals clean and therefore Peter could eat them. And again, we, we, we talked about how last week this was probably really confusing and a couple times it even mentions in the story that Peter was, he just didn't know what to do with it. And so Peter, like us, was, was learning along with the story. Because right as he has this vision of, of, of God telling him to eat unclean animals because God had made them clean, a couple of Gentiles come up to the house where he's at. And again, we talked about the, the coincidence of God's sovereignty. Look at verses 11 to 14. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. So three unclean Gentile men just happen to show up right after he has this vision about unclean food. And again, as we talked about last time, that there's no coincidence with God. That this is showing to us that God is trying to tell him something about those men. And that maybe they aren't unclean. Verse 12, And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. God made sure that Peter didn't screw this up. <laughs> and the Spirit was compelling Peter. And this is also telling the church that he's telling the story to that this is God's work. Because the Spirit is telling him to continue, making no distinction, no discrimination in going with these Gentile men. God's saying, this is what I want you to do, is to associate with people you're not to associate with, to go to the house of someone you're not supposed to enter their house. These six brothers also accompany me, and we entered the man's house. So Peter is, is saying that the six other of the believers who are standing with us right now came with me, and they can witness to all that I'm telling you. And he told us, this is Cornelius, how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And so Peter relates Cornelius' side of the story that even his part in all of this was God-ordained. He's helping the church understand this is what God wants. God gave me a vision. God gave Cornelius a vision. Cornelius was obedient to send for me. I was obedient by the power of the Spirit to go. This is God's work. And not just to go... But look at verse 14. This is the reason that Cornelius sent 
for Peter. This is what God wanted to happen. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. Peter is to preach the gospel to these Gentiles. That's what he's supposed to do. It's more than just go into a house he wasn't supposed to go into. It's more than eating with people he wasn't supposed to eat with. God's plan for Peter and Cornelius is for Peter to invite these Gentiles into God's family. To share the good news that Jesus died even for them. That Jesus died for all people, regardless of background or race or color or anything. Peter is painting the picture for this church of this is a work of God. That these people hear. That they too can be saved. That God is not a God who discriminates. And he offers the gospel to all people without partiality. And to put the icing on the cake, Peter says not only did he go into that house, not only did he share the gospel, but the Holy Spirit fell upon Gentiles just like it had the original disciples at Pentecost. Look at verses 15 and 16. As I began to speak, again, this is Peter talking, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. There's a couple things we need to see here. Number one, the Holy Spirit comes down on these Gentiles in a way that Peter and the other Christians with him can see and recognize that this is the Holy Spirit. And so this is God himself saying, these are my people. And not only that, they're my people in the same way that you people of Jewish ancestry are my people. Look at verse 15. The Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning, a reference to Pentecost in Acts 2. Here's what it's saying. You guys are my people in the same way that they are. There's an equality in your salvation. You didn't earn it. They didn't earn it. You're both saved by grace, sealed by the Holy Spirit. This is the great leveler of our faith. 
that we are all saved by grace through faith and given the Spirit. There are no first-level and second-level and third-level Christians. We're all in the same way. (laughs) And we all have the same Spirit. It wasn't like the Gentiles got like the leftover Spirit at the end. Well, you know, we've had it for about three years and we did the lease thing and now you can buy it and you get, you know, you get Spirit 2.0. Just as on us at the beginning. But here's the other side of this, is that it's not just the experience that Peter feels in the moment. It's not that he just caught up in the moment because what does Peter do? But he looks at his experience in the light of the word of God. Look at verse 16. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. He doesn't just trust what he's feeling. He doesn't even just trust his eyes and what he sees and experiences. He takes his experience and sees if it is congruent with the word of God. And and let me just give a quick aside that this is a wonderful pattern for our lives as Christians. Because we can be deceived by what we feel in the moment. We can be deceived by what we experience. And so we need to take our experience through the lens of Scripture and make sure that they're compatible. Because that's exactly what Peter's doing here. He doesn't want to be tricked, he doesn't want to be manipulated by his emotions and his feelings but he confirms what he experiences by the word of God. And they are congruent. They do confirm each other so that what he experiences and what he has heard from Jesus himself match. And so again, he knows it's the truth. He can have confidence that that what he experienced is real. Because he has the objective truth of the word of God protecting him from manipulation and protecting him from just wanting, seeing what he wants to see. You see, he has to lose his discrimination because not only is he experiencing that the Gentiles have believed, but it's confirmed by what Jesus himself said, and that never changes. And so he can stand up to his critics. Again, let's not lose the fact that this, this might have looked like one of those ugly committee meetings you sometimes find yourself in. <laughs> Where it goes downhill real quick. <laughs> but he knows that what he has seen is the truth because God's word confirms it. And verse 17 is his conclusion to this argument. Because again, he's, he's, he's making this argument in not friendly confines here. 
But his conclusion is in verse 17. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Who was I to stand in God's way? Peter understands after this whole experience of the different visions, of all of these intricate details coming together that we talked about last week. Again, read through chapter 10 again if you want. But his conclusion should be our conclusion. That this is what God wants, and what God wants, God gets. <laughs> and, and, and who am I to stand in the way of God? I mean, that's exactly right. You can't. Through all of the details, we see God's sovereign control over this whole situation. And the, and the idea is that you can't get in God's way. <laughs> and you shouldn't want to. And, and so the early church is faced with a response. Are you trying to hinder the work of God? And let me tell you, that question should scare you. And that's one that can cut you to the heart is what I'm doing or not doing, is that hindering the work of God. Not that we actually can hinder it, but do we presume that we have enough power to hinder it? So we come back to the church. They've heard the argument. They've heard the testimony of Peter what are they going to do are they going to have a congregational meeting and just vote Peter out and so hey if you want to go hang out with the Gentiles you can go hang out with the Gentiles what are they going to do there's a huge crossroads for, for all of world history here will we let Gentiles into the church. Thankfully, for all of us here, the answer to that is no. Look at point three. Praise God that he saves Gentiles. Look at verse 18. When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Look at their two responses. Number one, silence. Sometimes when we are confronted with the truth of God's word, we just need to shut our mouths.
This is a wonderful response by them. Because they were critical of Peter. They were saying, Peter, we, we don't do that. That's not what we do. We're not those type of people. And when confronted with the truth that, yes, God saves all people, all types of people from every background, even Gentiles, they are silent before the truth of God. Their silence is a demonstration that they don't want to hinder the work of God. And it's an act of obedience to do what God wants them to do. But secondly, their response is joyful praise to God. They celebrate. The people that started off really angry at Peter for doing what he did are now celebrating the God who grants repentance that leads to life to Gentiles. We, we can't miss the complete transformation from the beginning of this congregational meeting to the end. That they were opposing what God was doing and now they are praising God for it. They are celebrating. They're not just grudgingly okay with it like a little kid. You know, that goes to their room because you force them and you're still bigger than them. Right? And they can't, like, you can still put them in their room. And they're like, not that this happens at my house. I've heard at other houses it happens. Other houses. Not my kids. It is. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> but they go from criticism to rejoicing. They don't go grumbling. They're transformed by the truth of the gospel that God does not show partiality and they rejoice and praise God that he has brought salvation to Gentiles. So the question for us is how do we celebrate like the early church celebrated? How do we celebrate that God has brought life to sinners? Let me suggest to you three ways that we individually and we as a church celebrate the conversion, especially of those we might not, if we're honest, we, we, we might not want them to get converted. <laughs> three ways. Number one, that we make it a priority. that we make sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with sinners a priority. I mean, I think we can see in our everyday lives that a way to celebrate something is to make it a priority. So you think about things like celebrating an anniversary. It, it pretty much has to be an emergency for you to cancel your plans because you're celebrating that thing and it's important and so it really needs to be like life and death before you'd cancel that, right? 
it's a celebration because you've made it a part. You've set it apart from the everyday normal stuff of life. And you show, you show the person, you show your spouse that you care because you've, you've set apart that time to celebrate. You've made it a priority. You've made them a priority. Right? It's just, you just see that in everyday life. So too in the church. If, if we don't make sharing the gospel with, with sinners who, who God offers his grace and forgiveness, if we don't make it a priority, well, we're certainly not going to, it's certainly not celebrating it. I mean, are we just, is, are, do we treat sharing the gospel like just sort of, if I have leftover time, I might do it? How much stuff do you get done with the, quote, time that if I have it at the end, I'll do it then? Like, do you get a lot of stuff done then? You don't. <laughs> if we're just sort of hoping it'll happen kind of maybe later if, then it's not going to happen. We've got to make it a priority. With time... You know, I've said this before. I think time is the most expensive currency in our world right now. And am I willing to give up my time for someone else? I think is one of the toughest questions we will ask. Will I make it a priority in my weekly schedule to talk with my neighbor my coworker, person at school, will I make time to talk to them about Jesus? We celebrate it by making it a priority. Secondly, we celebrate it by not having anger at the generosity of the gospel. Like I said, the, the church, after they heard Peter, wasn't sort of like, well, I guess we have to if God said it, and grumbled about it. There's a wonderful story about grumbling in Matthew chapter 20. Let me summarize this parable for you. It's a wonderful parable. God in this parable is a landowner, and he finds some people in the morning, and he says, hey, come work on my field, and I'll give you a denarius, which is pretty much a day's, day's wage. So he does that in the morning. They say, okay, we go. Then he does it a little later in the morning. He says the same thing. He goes and he says, hey, come and work on my field, and I'll pay you, and, and, and you work on my field. And he does it in the afternoon, and he does it one hour before closing time. And at the end of the day, everybody comes to the boss to get the money that was owed them. And he gives everybody the same payment. Even the guy who only worked an hour. And some of the people complain. And he says, isn't this the money I promised you in the morning? And they have to admit yes. And there is, the point of the story is that the reward for all of us is the same, forgiveness and the hope of eternal life. Whether you come to faith as a six-year-old or as a 90-year-old. And we cannot begrudge 
the generosity of God. We cannot get, well, God, I should get extra points because I came to Christ earlier than this guy. I got about 30 years on him. And so I should get some interest on that. (laughs) And we need to be careful of that. It's pretty insidious where we almost begrudge people who maybe we know, we know their background. We know the lifestyle they're living before they came to know Jesus. And it's really easy to use that chip against them. But we forget that we're all sinners and that we have all received grace and God is generous to all of us because we were all enemies of God before we believed in Jesus. Thirdly, do we have joy at the lost being found? Again, I want to reference the words of Jesus from Luke 15. There are three stories in Luke about lost things being found. There's a lost sheep, there's a lost coin, and there's two lost sons, or more commonly known as the prodigal son. But all three of them end with a party when the lost is found. Do you find joy when someone believes the gospel for the first time? Because in Jesus' mind, when someone repents of their sins and believes in the death and resurrection of Jesus, it should be like a party. Listen to Luke 15, 10. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Do you have joy in one sinner who repents? And I talked about this this morning in our adult Sunday school. Sometimes the reason you don't have joy in your life is because you are not sharing the gospel with others. Because here's our natural inclination. If I'm not feeling joy, I sort of cocoon up and try to take care of myself. But sometimes the way to take care of yourself is to reach out and take care of others. You know, you know we talked about mops earlier. And Mops, doing that twice a month for a couple hours on Wednesday mornings isn't always joyful. Sometimes it's pretty hard. Sometimes, you know, like I was in the two-year-old room a couple times. Let me tell you about that two-year-old room. You survive in advance, all right? (laughs) Some days. But when you look back and you look at it as a whole, and you realize that you got to show the love of God to these children. That, that you got to share the gospel with these kids. It makes the hard times worth it because you can find joy in knowing that you shared the love of God with a little child. 
that, that when we do, here, here's a perspective that I got from my friend, that when you do ministry, especially among children, you may be the first person to tell that child about Jesus. And that's where we get joy in serving others, in sharing the love of God with people for the first time. And we're to celebrate when they believe. Friends, how are you celebrating conversion? How are you celebrating people repenting of their sin and believing that Jesus died for them to forgive them and give them the hope of eternal life? Are, are we making it a priority? Are we not grumbling at the generosity of God to people, not us? And are we finding joy with the lost being found? Let's pray. Father God, that we would, like the early church, celebrate sinners believing the gospel and being reconciled to you and being forgiven and having the hope of eternal life just like us. That we would understand that we were in that same place and that you died for us and you died for them and that we would celebrate people hearing about Jesus by making it a priority and that we would find joy in serving others the way that you have served us, that we would share the love that you have for them. God, help us to really celebrate and be changed by the gospel. And that we would understand that God gives salvation to all who believe. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.